The Bible says to praise the Lord upon stringed instruments and organs. And you understand that's what happened there. And appreciate that. And what a great song. God is big enough. God is big enough. Matthew chapter 11. We studied last week some information the Bible gives us about John the Baptist. It was the Savior who said in verse 11, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. We talked a little bit about his background, a little bit about his ministry, and we saw that amazing compliment that the Savior paid to him. There's never been a man born among women greater than John the Baptist. We looked throughout the Bible, there were a few times that God singled out some individuals and paid such a high compliment. We talked about Job, we, we, we talked about David, we talked about Moses and so forth, and we ask ourselves the questions, so what does God think, what does God say when he looks at us? Does he have the same type of opinion of us, the same type of compliment to offer based on our faith and our faithfulness. But that was just one part of the text that is before us. And this morning, we want to look a little bit more at this, this great man that the Savior talked about, John the Baptist. We know from the Bible that John's ministry was prophesied about some 400 years before he was born. In fact, the Savior quoted that in verse 10, for this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Jesus is quoting from the book of Malachi, chapter three and verse one. Malachi was the last prophet that Israel had until John the Baptist showed up on the scene. So God had told his people 400 years earlier that he was going to send a specific messenger that was going to prepare them to receive the coming of the Lord. John was one of only a handful of people in the Bible whose birth was predicted or prophesied or foretold by an angel. Luke chapter 1, we learned that uh, his, his father, Zacharias, his mom, Elizabeth, were old, then the Bible says, well stricken in age. Evidently, they had prayed for years for a child, and, and it had never happened until they became so old it was not humanly possible. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Zacharias in the temple one day and let him know that, uh, you know, nine months from now, your wife is going to have a child. You're going to name him John. He's going to be the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy and so forth. So there was a lot of spectacular things that were all a part of John the Baptist's life. His, his birth was miraculous. Against mom and dad were old and well-stricken in age. God had to, if you will, turn back the clock uh, in his mother's body and womb so that she could bear this son. And everything about him was unique. The Bible says in Luke 1.15 that John was filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. That's, a, that's an amazing truth to wrap our minds around. We know in, in Luke chapter 1, when Mary went down to where Elizabeth lived after she found out she was going to bear the Christ, uh, she went to her cousin Elizabeth, who was now six months expecting. The moment Mary walked into the house, the baby inside Elizabeth's womb kicked and leaped for joy. Um, from, from his mother's womb, the Holy Spirit somehow let him know uh, the Messiah is in your presence and he's just kicking up a storm. By the way, that's just one more reason why I believe life begins in the womb. 
And life in the womb is precious in the sight of God and should be protected like anybody else. Um, John the Baptist, uh, from the time he was a child, uh, the spirit of God was upon him and everybody knew that in that region and he grew and waxed strong in the spirit. John the Baptist introduced the nation of Israel and thus the entire world to the Lord Jesus Christ, letting them know that the Messiah had come. In John 1.29, John was out there in the wilderness with this multitude of people and his closest disciples around him. And the Bible says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And a few minutes later, he said in verse 36, And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. This was a vital ministry. This was an amazing ministry. It is something that Israel never thought would happen again. I'm a student of history. Probably not the best student of history that there is. But among other things, I have studied the history of revivals. Revivals especially in our country. Do you understand that New England, where we live, was the home of some of the greatest spiritual revivals our nation has ever known? The Great Awakening that started in Enfield, Connecticut, just uh, less than an hour north of us, uh, with Jonathan Edwards preaching the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, swept all over the Northeast, and, and people were revived, and it's stuff that even in secular history books, they talk about the Great Awakening. Some years later, there was a second great awakening. And believe it or not, it started here in the Northeast. In 1857, I believe it was, a layman in a church in, in New York City got burdened about the sin of his country and of the apathy of churches. And he started a noonday prayer meeting. And, and what is known in history as the prayer revival was started. By the time it was done, um, uh, in New York City, at noontime, they were shutting down businesses because everybody was going somewhere to pray. Churches were filled. Uh, saloons were emptied out and closed, and they were turned into places for prayer meetings. It was said as that, that revival swept the country that 150,000 Confederate troops came to know Christ as Savior as a result of the Holy Spirit. I read about those things, but they're all in the past. They're all in the past. And there's part of me that wonders, am I ever going to see that in my lifetime? I got saved in 1972, and believe it or not, there was a revival in, 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 in our churches. And the largest church in almost every state in the United States of America was an independent, Bible-believing, soul-winning Baptist church. Anywhere you look, uh, bus ministries flourished. People were, were being saved and baptized. Bible colleges were being established. And then somehow in the 80s, it kind of all petered out and everything got quiet again. And I keep wondering, am I going to hear about it again? John the Baptist came on the scene at a time when people thought God had stopped listening. That God did not care. They were the dark years, the silent years. And all of a sudden came this man. He was not much to look at as far as the, the glamour and glitz of the world. Uh, he dressed in camel's hair. Uh, he ate a, a basic diet of locusts and wild honey. By the way, you understand that John's ministry was attracting the, the attention of an entire nation when he was in his 20s. He wasn't an old geezer like me. He was in his 20s. His ministry ended when he was about 30 maybe 31. 
We're talking about a young man who shook his nation for God. But shortly after the ministry of Christ began, after he, John pointed out, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, the multitudes that followed John left him. They're now following Jesus. The Bible says John did no miracle, but everywhere Jesus went, he did miracles without number. The apostle John said that the things which Jesus did, he said, I suppose that if all those things should be written in a book, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. And suddenly the man who had captured the attention of a nation for God no longer has it. Nobody's looking to John anymore. They're following the Son of God, the Lamb of God that John had pointed out. And then all of a sudden, John's ministry is done. It's over. And he is in prison. He had pointed out to King Herod, who was living with his sister-in-law in immorality, that this thing was wrong. It's sin in the eyes of God. And that, that vile, wicked woman encouraged Herod to throw John into prison and there he was in prison, no audience. He still had some disciples that were faithful to him that tried to encourage and minister him. But the man who turned a nation to God is forgotten by that very nation. He's at a difficult moment in his life. Not that he's never had them before, but never of that magnitude. I don't know if John had hopes of getting out of prison or if John realized this is where it all ends, but there he was confined. The man that the, the wilderness was his auditorium and, and nature was, was his platform and, and all of that is suddenly confined to a little dark cell in the palace of a wicked man. He's experienced a diminished ministry. How hard it would be to have so, all those multitudes and suddenly they're gone. In John chapter 3, John made this statement about the Savior. You'll know it and you'll probably be able to finish it. When he talked about Jesus, he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Well, that's a great saying, isn't it? Till it happens. We talk about, we preach sermons about uh, Jesus got to increase and I've got to decrease until it happens. Because there's a part of us that struggle with that. We, we want to be seen. We want to be known. We want to be recognized. We want to be thanked. But when we sell out to Christ, all of that gets set aside. And if Christ has all of the attention, that means we have none of it. And that's hard for human beings to handle. John has no choice now. That's his life. He has decreased. And Jesus has increased. He has a delayed manifestation John, like everyone else of his day, when they thought of the Christ that was to come, the Messiah, the anointed one, they saw him coming as a ruler. Daniel prophesied about the ancient of days that would destroy the kingdoms of this world and set up a kingdom that would have no end. Uh, countless Bible prophecies talked about the fact that he's going to rule and reign forever. And by the way, Jesus will. He is coming back again in the book of Revelations. Uh, the angels are going to declare the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Uh, by the way, he still rules. The most high ruleth in the kingdom of men. 
We got a bunch of world rulers today that some of them declare that there is no God. The multitude of them live as if there is no God, but they are dead wrong. They think that they're running things. They think that they're in control of the whole things. They're just puppets in the hands of almighty God, the most high ruleth. But one day the Lord Jesus is going to step on this earth. He is going to rule and reign. He is going to be crowned king of kings and Lord of lords. But it hasn't happened yet and it didn't happen then. But that's what they thought he came to do. That's what John thought when he said, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He, was, he understood the redemption aspect, but he thought it was all going to happen at one moment and Christ was going to come to get a crown, but he didn't. Jesus came the first time to get a cross. He'll come the second time to get a crown. And so John is in this prison. John has a diminished ministry Jesus didn't set up the kingdom. Herod's still running the show. Rome is still in charge of the world. And John is a prisoner of all that. And so notice in verse number two. Now, when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? The greatest man ever born of woman asked that question of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one he said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. Sends two disciples and said, are you really him? Or should we be looking elsewhere? Think about that for a moment. Let, let, let that sink in. John was discouraged. You ever get that way? You get discouraged. Boy, it can, it can set on us so easy. A setback. You invest your time and your, your effort and your, your energy in, in, in something for God and it doesn't seem to pan out or maybe it fails and falls apart altogether, all at least as far as you, you're considering all of that and you can just get discouraged in a heartbeat. 30, almost 32 years ago, we took our young family to Pennsylvania to start a church. We worked hard. We knew it was the will of God. We knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that it was so. God had made it known. We worked hard. We spent a month laying the groundwork. We won people to Christ. We had, we had multitudes of people said, we're going to be there. We're going to be there. We're going to be there. And the first Sunday, we had the, the rented auditorium set up. We had a sign out front. We, we were just all ready to go. And none of the people that got saved showed up. None of the people who promised to come came. We had 45 chairs set up and there were eight of us counting my wife, myself, and our three small children. He was the usher. He took the offering that day. Three other people came, my dad, the gal he was dating, and her son. And they just came for moral support. They were members of another church. Boy, discouragement set in, I mean, hard and fast. And John is in that place. He is disillusioned. He, he, he'd lived his whole life for God from his mother's womb. And this is what he got. Nobody thinks of things ending up that way. And he is doubting. The greatest man who ever lived is in the darkest, most difficult place of his life. And he is filled with doubt. How many have ever experienced that? God, where are you? If God loved me, why would he let this happen? 
man, I've served God and I've been faithful and I've tried to do right and yet God lets this happen. He's doubting. The greatest man who ever lived. This almost comforts me because if the greatest man ever born of woman had a period of doubt, then I guess I'm not that terrible if I'm struggling with some of that myself. Not that doubt is good, but I'm just, I'm just kind of saying it encourages me that the Lord included this about John. And John's not the first to go through it. In Psalm chapter 13, the Bible gives us a song to the chief musician, a psalm of David. David, the man after God's own heart. We talked about him last week. That was God's testimony about David. Listen to David's prayer. How long wilt thou forget me, O God, forever? Does God ever forget us? God doesn't forget anything except my sin. And he's chosen to do that. He forgot my sin not because he, is, he has problems with his memory like I do. It's God just willfully said, once I got saved, it's done. He doesn't look at me as a sinner anymore. He looks at me as a son of God. But David was there and something's going on in his life and he's praying and talking to God and nothing's coming through. And here's the man after God's own heart. God, how long are you going to forget me forever? Am I going to live the rest of my life like this? He goes on, how long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? I feel like I'm talking to myself. I feel like I'm looking for answers and, and they aren't coming for you, from you. All I'm coming up with is, well, maybe this will work or maybe that'll work and it's all falling flat. Having sorrow in my heart daily, how long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Do you understand that the sweet psalmist of Israel went through periods where he just doubted that God was even there, that God even heard him, that God even cared? Elijah, the great prophet, in 1 Kings chapter 18, God used him to call down fire from heaven and, and consume a sacrifice, 63-word prayer, and God answered in a mighty way. And the nation of Israel experienced a, a revival. And the people that just a few verses before when he said, uh, choose you this day, is Baal God or is Jehovah God? And the Bible says they just stood there and looked at him. He said, how long halt you between two opinions? Oh, by the end of that day, though, God had showed up and the fire fell from heaven. And those same people, they're no longer halting. They're not divided anymore. They said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah saw revival. And the very next day, Jezebel puts out a contract on his life. And the man who saw 800 prophets of Baal and priests of Baal destroyed and saw a revival got so deflated and discouraged, he took off and ran and left the country. Left the country. The Bible says, but he, went, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take away my life for I am not better than my father's. That great prophet. The prophet, by the way, who was the forerunner of John the Baptist. John is the New Testament version of Elijah in the Old Testament. The Savior said he was. Amen. The scriptures prophesied that he would be. Here's Elijah sitting down under a tree saying, that mean woman's after me and she doesn't like me and I tried to do right and I prayed and fire came down from heaven and it's just not fair, Lord. I just want to die. He didn't want to die. If he did, he would have stayed back there and let her take care of it. 
and I guess we're minimizing it, he was, in a, he was in a place of tremendous doubt. And he spent another 40 days like that until we went to Mount Sinai and had a meeting with God. So it is not unusual for us as believers to go through difficult places, difficult times, and all of a sudden we fall prey to the questions, where's God? Why isn't God doing anything? Why isn't God changing this? Am I going to just pray forever and not ever see an answer? What's going on? And all of that comes creeping out. That is where John the Baptist is. Now, I want you to notice a few things from the text about John the Baptist that I hope will help somebody that's listening to this message today. First of all, would you, would you realize with me, understand with me, John recognized where he was. He rec- now, he knew he was in prison. I, I, you do understand that, okay? Uh, John had no illusions like, I'm just pretend that I'm outside and I'm by a, a, a rippling. No, there was none of that visualization. John knew he was in prison, knew why he was there, knew who put him there, knew it was wrong, and we have no idea if he knew he was going to die there or not. He would. He would be beheaded in that same place. We have no idea what he knew about his future. He just knew where he was. When I say he recognized where he was, I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about spiritually. He recognized that. The prison wasn't the problem. Paul and Silas were in a prison, and they were beaten And they were cast in stocks. There's no evidence that those things happened to John that he was beaten. He was just cast into prison. But Paul and Silas weren't experiencing the same doubt and conflict that John was. They were singing praises and they were praying and God sent a great revival. It wasn't the physical prison. It was the inside prison. And John was wise enough to realize something's missing in here. My confidence isn't what it was. I'm doubting the truth of God's word. I'm doubting that Jesus truly is the Lamb of God and the Messiah. And he was honest enough and humble enough to admit exactly where he was. That is hard sometimes for us to do. We don't want to let people know that we're struggling. A lot of preachers in the last decades have dropped out of the ministry or have just suffered in silence because they thought it was wrong of them to admit, I'm I'm struggling with something. And and I'm not just talking about a certain temptation, just I'm struggling with discouragement. I'm I'm tired. I'm I'm dealing with things. The stress is taking a toll on on my wife. And and so they would never reach out for help. And some of them just, they just, their lives fell apart. John the Baptist tells us it's okay to acknowledge where we are. But pride has a way of saying, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Remember, we talk about this a lot in Luke 22, the night before the cross. The Savior told Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. He said, but I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Uh, The Savior said, you're in trouble. The devil's after you. He wants to get you and he's after you tonight and I'm praying for you. And and rather than Peter saying, I've got a need and and the devil's after me and and I need God's help to overcome this. I'm fine. I'm fine. You don't have to worry about me. I'll never deny you. Though everybody else here will, I won't deny you. I'm ready to go to prison. I'm even ready to go to the death for you. Was he? Not at all. 
And he messed up big time that night because he just wasn't honest enough to say, I've got a fault, I've got a flaw, and I need God. Even later that night, the Savior brought he and James and John and said, I want you to pray with me. My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Watch and pray here. He came back and said, watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. And Peter didn't see any big need about that and just fell asleep. He just wasn't honest and humble enough to say the Lord's right. I need his help. And he messed up so badly. There are people that have listened to salvation messages who grew up in church, but knew they were lost. If it's okay, you mentioned it in Sunday school. Grew up in a preacher's home. Made profession of faith as, as a boy, but didn't remember much about it. And it's not that we pushed him to do so. Uh, he, just, he just did and, and so forth. But in his heart of hearts, the doubt was always there. The worry and the wonder was always there. And at the age of 20, he had gone through how many years of listening to evangelists and sermons and pastors and preacher and parents talk about being saved and all of that. He watched people walk down the aisle and receive Christ as Savior. In his own heart, he, was, he knew, I'm not saved, but if I go forward, they're all going to look down on me. By the way, when somebody who, who, who makes that decision to get saved, who's been a member of the church or whatever, and they finally realize, I'm not putting on the show anymore, and they walk forward to get saved, if you've got some spirit about you that wants to look down on them and wants to put them down, you need to get right with God. Christ died to save them, and that is a miracle of God that the Holy Spirit broke through the pride, broke through the hardness, broke through the resistance, and they're finally getting saved. And if the angels are rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, why can't we? But there are all kinds of people that hear those kind of gospel messages just stay put. They know they're lost, but they are not willing to do anything about it for fear of what people are going to say. John was not like that, and maybe this was part of his greatness. He recognized something's missing. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day refused to admit that they were sinners who needed a Savior. The scriptures could be opened unto them and they just turned a deaf ear and a blind eye to all of that because they had built a lifetime and a reputation of being holier than thou and being righteous. They'd worked so hard and for them to admit that we're, we're sinners like the publicans. We're sinners like the harlots. We're sinners like the sinners. They just couldn't deal with that. They wouldn't admit that. They'd rather die and go to hell and hold on to their pride than to admit they needed to be saved. Oh, let us not ever be that foolish. Let us not ever be that small. King Saul was handpicked by God to be the king of the nation of Israel, and he did all right for a while, and then he got lifted up in pride. 1 Samuel chapter 15, he was given a commandment from God through the prophet Samuel. Go and smite the Amalekites. Destroy them utterly. Don't leave anybody alive, man, woman, or child. Destroy all their animals, destroy all their belongings. God had given the Amalekites hundreds of years to turn back to him, and they'd only gotten worse. And God said, My, their time is up. So King Saul had a clear command. He went out and he destroyed them, except he saved the best of the sheep and the oxen and the cattle and all of those kind of things, saved the king alive. And God came to the prophet and said, you need to go seek out Saul. He said, I'm done with him. I'm done with him. 
Uh, I'm, I'm going to remove my blessing from him and I'll replace his family on the throne of Israel. And Samuel came and here comes Saul walking up when he sees the preacher come to him. Hail, uh, I, I've just done the will of God. No, he'd only done the part of the will of God he wanted to do. He's like a lot of us today. We pick and choose what parts of the Bible we're going to yield to and obey. And that's what Saul did. And Samuel said, well, if you've obeyed God, what meaneth then the bleeding of the sheep that I do here? Dead sheep don't bleat. And that's poetry in the highest order. And even though Samuel pointed it out, Saul continued to say, no, but I've done the work of God and we saved those to make an offering from the Lord. He just refused to admit he had sinned. His stubbornness was so strong. And Samuel looked at him and said, God has a message for you. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as wickedness and idolatry. You've rejected God and God's rejected you. John the Baptist was made of better stuff. He had the wisdom, the honesty, and the humility to realize something's missing. Have you ever woken up one day and started walking through your day and just realized, I'm not as close to God as I used to be. I read my Bible, I'm not getting anything out of it like I used to. I don't pray like I used to. I, I don't have that passion for souls do you, do you ever wake up and realize it and say something's missing and, it, and it, it changes your direction just realizing it's gone? Or do you, uh, but you know, I, I'm, I'm a busy person and I'm still doing a lot for God and I'm, I'm still going to church and I'm still doing this rather than just saying there's something, something wrong between me and God. John the Baptist recognized where he was. Number two, he reached out to Jesus. He could have just sat in the prison wallowing in doubt but he knew where the answer would be. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He knew if anybody had the answer to the question, art thou he that should come, or do we look for another, it would be Jesus. Jesus was younger than him by six months. Jesus' ministry was newer than his. But John had such a humble spirit about him, he went to his younger cousin and said, I need help. I need to know. We have the marvelous, marvelous promise from the Lord that if you seek him, you'll find him. Problem is we just don't. It's always God chasing after us. The average Christian is like taking a cat for a walk. You're just dragging them along. I know you can train every now and then you can train a cat, but most of the time they are training you and you know it's true. And that's the way we are. It's like God dragging us about by a leash. God's just looking for somebody to seek him. That's exactly what John did. He just reached out. David, remember the man who cried, Lord, how long? Are you going to forget me forever? David made this statement later on. He said in Psalm 120, verse 1, In my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. He heard me. Peter had the opportunity to listen to what God said and respond, but Peter just turned Jesus off. He just said, I can handle it on my own. John had no intention of doing that. John was wise enough and honest enough and humble enough to know, I can't do this on my own. Are you the one? Are you the one? Job's wife lost so much. She lost all of her wealth, 
lost her house, her clothing, her comfort zone, and she lost all 10 of her children on the same day. We have to assume not just her children, but her daughters-in-laws, her sons-in-laws, maybe grandchildren, lost them all in a single day. I don't comprehend that much grief. Chapter later, her husband, who was the only thing she had left, lost his health. They're living in the city dump instead of the biggest house on the street. Lost everything. Job's wife, rather than seek God and say, Lord, why and what's going on? God, we need you. Looked at her husband and just said, curse God and die. Boy, that comes so easy when we're in the prison, when we're in the garbage dump, when everything's gone from us. But uh, John was of better stuff. If I curse God, I will die. But I'll die alone. I'll die unblessed. And I have no intention of doing that. He died a martyr for Christ. He died with the epitaph, this is the greatest man ever born of woman because when he recognized I'm struggling spiritually, he reached out to Christ and here's the last thing I want you to understand. I'm almost doing good on time. He received mercy and grace from the Lord. He received mercy and grace from the Lord. We read the verses with Brother Tim today. We read them last week. Notice in verse number four, as these disciples arrive to Jesus and they ask him the question, art thou he that should come or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said unto them, go and tell John that he should know better than this. Go and tell John that he has defiled my name and, and I'm so disappointed in him. Is that what the Savior said? Not at all. Do you understand Jesus never rebuked him and said, you idiot, you should know better. How long have you been saved? How long have you known the Lord? How much have you seen God do? Uh, how much of the Bible? The Savior didn't do that at all. When he saw this hurting man reached out, the Savior didn't make him hurt more. He's the healer. He's the great physician. People may want to hurt us when we've stumbled and fallen, but the Savior wants to heal and help us. And all the Savior had to say, go back and tell John. Tell him what you've seen. The blind receive their sight. John never saw that in his ministry. But the blind receive their sight, not just one, but everywhere he went. The lame walk. I, I love this part of it. Do you know there are, there's a place in the New Testament that said Jesus even healed the maimed? You know what maimed means? People that have had something hacked off. Brother Warren, where are you at? There you are. Brother Warren, I like to think that if you and I were alive when Jesus walked in the earth, we'd have walked up and he'd have just helped us grow a brand new leg. Now, would that not be cool or what? But nonetheless, he said, the lame, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Just go back and tell John everything that God's doing. And blessed is he, whosoever's not offended in me. And he, he, was, he was telling John, don't give up on me. Don't, don't, don't think that you believed in vain. You just stay right where you are. That's where the blessing of God will be. Don't stumble in your faith because of problems or because of the prison or any of that. You just, you just keep focused on me. You were right. I am the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. It will be done. It is the will of God. John, John, it's going to be okay. 
He received mercy and grace from the Lord. And then the guy's walking away to go tell John right away. And Jesus looked at the crowd and said, so when you went out in the wilderness and you, you wanted to hear him preach, what did you go out to see? We walked through this last week. He said, you didn't go out to hear a guy that's just going to tell you, this is your best life now. You, you, didn't hear, you, you heard a guy that said you're a bunch of vipers who need to get right with God. And you did. You didn't go out and see a guy in a $3,000 suit. You saw a guy wearing camel's hair. Have you ever seen the hair on a camel? I think camels are gross creatures. It won't surprise me he'll have one. Oh, they're illegal in the state, or he would have one. Um, He said, you didn't go out to see that. He said, you went out to see more more than even a prophet. And John went on to, to, to give such a, or Jesus went on to give John such great, great compliments. Isn't it wonderful that when we struggle, our God doesn't hold it against us. Amen. Moment of honesty. Has anybody here ever struggled with your faith? Anybody? You look at life and say, where's God? God love me, why? This is not where I plan to be at 65. Oh, I plan to be at this church. It's 65, but not like this. And it's very easy to say, why? And I have. I'm so glad that when I've done that, in my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he didn't turn the volume down. He didn't hang up the phone. He said, I'm right here. I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. We look at this life of John the Baptist. You know he wasn't asking to be delivered from prison. He just said, I want to know if you're the one. He wanted to be delivered from something worse than a physical prison. He wanted to be delivered from doubt and discouragement and disillusionment. And we have to trust, based on what the Savior said about him, that he was. The purpose of the message this morning is to encourage us. Let's, let's just stop being honest with ourselves or stop being dishonest and just admit I need God. I'm trying to handle this all by myself. I can't do it anymore. I'm struggling to do my own thing and it's just not working out. I, I need God in my life. Everybody thinks I'm saved, but I not, I'm not. I need to get saved. And I'm not trying to talk anybody out of your salvation. I'm talking to those you know it hadn't happened yet. And now pride set in and you're afraid to let anybody know. Get over that. Conquer that. And just let God do what God wants to do, and that is to save you and make you his child. And God has blessings for us. Along the way, there are going to be some trials. There are going to be some difficulties. But he's still God, and he's still good. John was honest with himself, and that let him be honest with God. He was humble enough to admit that he needed the Lord's help, and he got it, and he got his answers from God. How many here this morning, you know you're saved. You know you're saved. You know for sure if you died this moment, you go to heaven. You have that assurance from the Word of God, the Spirit of God in your heart. You know you're saved. How many can say that? Is not that a wonderful thing? Not a, that's a great thing. Can we pray? Father... Thank you for the life of John the Baptist, incredible testimony. And thank you for telling us what it was like for him in the prison. In my humanity, it's helped me to know that a great man like him struggled too.
And the way he handled it shows me how I'm supposed to handle it when it happens to me. I pray for God's people. I know a lot of the trials that these dear people are going through. There are a lot of people in this room that are just like me that did not think at this stage in life we'd be going through it alone. And there's the, the, the question mark keeps coming up, why? There are people that have go, gone through health crises that there just doesn't seem to be an answer or an end. I've talked to several already today and it's easy for us to start doubting. There are people here that have prayed for years for loved ones to get saved or come back to God and it still hasn't happened. And Lord, if we're not careful, we'll get discouraged and we'll doubt. Lord, I pray that we would follow in the footsteps of the greatest man born of woman and just come to Jesus just as we are and say, Lord, I need you. I need you now. If there's anybody here not saved, please let this be the day that they get that settled. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, is there anybody here that would be honest?